Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This week on Wealth Track, the pressure is on active managers. How does one of the top global growth firms retain its competitive edge? A candid conversation with Harding Lovner Simon Hallett is next on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective. Ku and Patricia Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences. Rosalind P. Walter and the Fairholm Foundation. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. Talk to any active money manager and they will tell you their biggest competitive threat is the trend to passive investing. The nine-year bull market has made index investing profitable and seemingly risk-free. A record $685 billion flowed into U.S. mutual funds and ETFs in 2017, with $692 billion going to passive funds and nearly $7 billion leaving actively managed ones. But there's another competitive threat to active managers that is less talked about. It's called the paradox of skill. Financial thought leader and former WealthTrack guest Michael Mobison wrote about it in his fascinating book, The Success Equation, Untangling Skill and Luck in Business, Sports and Investing. Basically, professional investors in their computers have become so skilled at gathering and analyzing market data and spotting price discrepancies that, as Mobison told us in a WealthTrack interview, skills become more uniform and there's less variance or difference between the best and worst. The paradox of skill is that as investors become better, luck plays a more important role in performance results, especially over the short term. How does an active manager maintain an edge over passive investing and more skilled competitors? That's what we will discuss with this week's guest. He is Simon Hallett, co-chief investment officer of Harding Lovner, a global money manager which has concentrated on buying high-quality growth companies since its inception in 1989. Hallett, who joined the firm in 1991 as a portfolio manager, gave up those duties when he assumed the CIO role in 2012, duties he has been sharing recently. With over $60 billion in assets under management, the firm's core business is institutional, and 25% of its clients are overseas. But it also runs several mutual funds, including global equity, emerging markets, and international equity, all of which have earned Morningstar Silver Medalist Analyst Rating for its approach, which Morningstar characterizes as sound and risk-conscious, delivering impressive risk-adjusted results overall. I asked Hallett how his firm is meeting the challenge of the massive flow into passive funds. We're meeting it by trying to get better continuously, I think, over the last 30 years that we've been operating. 
We've learned a lot about how we behave as investors. We've learned a lot about how we make good decisions, how we make bad decisions, and we've tried very hard to implement processes to help us overcome our emotions, to help us overcome our biases. But I think we've still got a bit further to go. When a client comes to you and says, you know, Simon, we're, we're looking at cost and we're looking at performance of the indexes. But how, how do you meet the performance and the cost argument that clients mm-hmm. come to you with? Well, it's, it's very hard to um, argue against the cost argument. And, mm-hmm. you know, frankly, I think that uh, clients need to be able to do three things. They need to be able to identify active managers who consistently outperform. They need to be able to stomach the higher costs. But thirdly, they need to be able to guarantee that they are going to be able to stick with those managers to capture the uh, long-term outperformance. I think all good long-term track records have periods of quite substantial underperformance. We've had three or four of them over the last 30 years, and in each case, we lost clients. Those clients then didn't capture the uh, outperformance that we subsequently generated. So clients uh, really, really need to be committed to managers where they can be confident that good results in the past can be replicable in the future. And that's very, very difficult. You mentioned uh, skill and luck. And, and there, there is a, a theory called the paradox of skill. And it basically is that, that professional investors are now so skillful um, because of all sorts of reasons, data mining and analytical skills and algorithms and everything else, um, that, that the difference between the best and the worst results has narrowed considerably and that luck plays a greater role in investment outcomes and investment success mm-hmm. than it did previously. N- number one, do you agree with that theory that there is a paradox of skill? Very much so. Uh, you know, as average skill levels in the industry have uh, improved, we are, as you say, now competing not so much with naive investors, but with uh, momentum-chasing investors, with investors arbitraging uh, uh, price anomalies that they've identified through very skilled analysis of data sets. But um, being able to identify the winners in the investment game is increasingly difficult because results, uh, relative results, are increasingly driven by luck. So, so have you analyzed at Harding Lovner what role luck has played in your results, or, or how do you handle that knowledge yeah. that, that yeah. luck is playing a bigger role? Well, it's, it, it, it's luck uh, on the short-term basis when you're trying to identify which manager has outperformed another manager. W- what we've done over the last couple of years is try to think very hard about our sources of edge, if you like. Right. Um, have we achieved the outperformance that we've achieved through luck? Has it been through skill? And if it has been through skill, where have we been able to apply that skill? And we think of it in, uh, in four dimensions. So the four sources of edge can be the data you have, right. how you analyze that data, the decisions you make from that data, and the institution or culture that you have surrounding the decision making. When it comes to data, Harding Ludner has no advantage whatsoever. Um, no one really does, right? Uh, At this point, or I think there are data sets that are, are there? available to some managers who are able to take advantage of very short-term price anomalies that okay. they perceive. They'll set up funds. The price anomaly will be arbitraged away within weeks or months, and they move on to an, uh, the next one. Highly legitimate. Uh, for us, we think that our advantage is being able to step back from that short-term price. Uh, anomaly type of mm-hmm. 
uh, approach to investment and take a long-term approach. So we're really arbitraging the fact that many investors don't even care about the long-term. And the kind of uh, uh, companies that we're investing in will generate significant returns over very long periods of time. And people uh, in the market in general don't care about the long term. I, I, I'm obviously exaggerating to make the point. Right. Finally, I think we have an organization that rewards long term behavior. Uh, you know, Jeremy Grantham, for example, has talked probably on your show. Mm -hmm about the dangers in the investment industry of career risk. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had a very stable investment team uh, over very long periods of time. The people, the portfolio managers on our global equity portfolio, for example, have been working together for nearly 20 years now. Career risk is not an issue. And I think that that kind of institutional environment means that we've been able to be self-critical without people feeling insecure. Can you think of an example when when you've, as the team has done the post-mortem mm -hmm. and, and said, you know, what went wrong yeah. here? Well, f first of all, let me say that, you know, w we think that our edge ends up being a very small edge. Um, you know, and when, small uh, compared to your competitors compared, in, no, compared, in the global growth or? Compared to the number of decisions we make. All right. So we reckon that about uh, somewhere between 53 and 54% of our decisions end up being correct in that they, the stocks we buy outperform the market or the mm -hmm. stocks we sell underperform the market. So it's a very, very small edge. And that's you know, the main reason why when I'm asked, what's your favorite stock? I say, I don't have one. <laughs> right. Um, you know, it's a, we, we're creating a series of uh, slightly in our favor or in our client's favor weighted coin tosses. And uh, to be able to ask us to bet on a single one is actually uh, really to misunderstand what we've tried to achieve. You've been in the business for about 40 years, right? So is, is it- Thanks for a, reminding me. Right, exactly, right. <laughs> but, but at Harding Lovner, I think since 1991. Correct, yes. But, but has that edge narrowed? I, I think that, uh, if I think back purely about us, so yes, ab absent, right. um, absent the environment, when I think about us, as we learn more and more going back 30 years of, right. of Harding Lovner, as we learned more and more, we managed to improve our edge. And I think partly as a result of improved skill levels, and particularly over the last few years, as there has been increased awareness of some of the advice from the behavioral finance mm -hmm. theorists, right. that I think our edge is under threat. And therefore, we need to bear down on places where we can still improve mm -hmm. and make sure we do so. You know, I, I get nervous when I see... Richard Saylor getting the Nobel Prize, <laughs> uh, you know, I Be think because that that that's been part of your edge, <laughs> absolutely, right? Is your behavioral that, finance, that, and so now that, if that becomes the decision making, really popular, popular, I think we'll. Right. I think it's almost inevitable, right, that people will finally, you know, and I'd say finally because behavioral economics, behavioral finance, the theory of decision making more mm -hmm. broadly has been part of the CFA syllabus, mm -hmm. as far as I know, for at least 25 years. Right, Chartered Financial Analyst. Yeah, mm -hmm. sorry, thank you. No, no. Um, but, um, you know, we've observed until recently that there seem to be three responses to this knowledge, this body of knowledge about decision-making. Mm -hmm. One is that people say, well, that's very interesting, but it doesn't apply to me, which is crazy because right. it applies to all human beings. The second one is that they say, well, that's very interesting. Um, this leads to some price anomalies. I'm going to start a fund to take advantage of it, which actually Richard Thaler has done himself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the third one, 
seems to be the least common, which is there's some theory here that I can uh, take notice of and I can use to inform our own decision-making processes. And I think that's what we've done. But I suspect that as, uh, in the next five to ten years that other people will start realising that even if that merely allows you to eliminate a small percentage of your mistakes, that that will give you a continuing edge as average school levels rise. Mm-hmm. How do you fit that in with cost? I'm saying that these, again, the competitive edge is narrow. Yeah. And then, then, then again, when you look at costs, mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you balance those or, or well, fit them look, into the equation? First of all, I'm no opponent of passive management. Mm-hmm. You know, as I said, I think there are, you, you need to have a few things um, under your control before you can justify even beginning to look for an active manager. Mm-hmm. So for many uh, clients, for many prospects, for many investors, having at least a large part of your portfolio passive, passively managed is something I fully support. Mm-hmm. Um, where I do think that it's become uh, a little over the top has been that the cost issue has become... Uh, it started off by being uh, one of the drivers, quite rightly. You can control cost, you can't control returns control what you can control. Right. But I think that costs have become so ingrained now in public policy that it has driven people increasingly to uh, advocate passive management, even in cases where it may not be appropriate. Let me ask you about kind of the investment piece of Harding Love, just what the the firm is all about. In an environment where global growth is accelerating, you're a growth manager. Are you seeing uh, a positive impact on the on the companies that you're investing in, uh, that are are you know growth companies? Very much so. Yeah, the um, you know I think we saw in 2017 for the first time since the financial crisis, very rapid acceleration of earnings growth, particularly in Europe, not just for the companies that we follow, but for uh, European corporations as a whole, and that really was the first time that uh, uh, corporate profit growth outside the United States began to match that inside the United States. So, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, and in fact, I think we probably saw it first in corporate earnings before we saw it more broadly in GDP, which now is beginning to accelerate in Europe. So does that improve um, the investment opportunities that, mm. that, 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 you're, that you're looking for? Yes, I, I think it's... Um, it's improved a little bit. And I should, I should just emphasize that we also care about the quality of the companies. We yes. Right. So right. We, 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 when we first started 30 years ago, we were described as value managers because we cared about price. In the mid-90s, we were uh, described as GARP managers because we cared about growth at a reasonable price. <laughs> and today we're called quality growth managers. We've been doing the same thing. Um, but it's worth uh, uh, mentioning that, particularly in the United States, over the last couple of years... Stock by stock, we've been sellers. Uh, so without any... On a price basis. Really on a price basis. So our actual holdings in the United States today in our global equity portfolio, mm-hmm. which I think is probably the best expression... Right, it's your flag top down, Right. Top, mm-hmm. top, 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 top down views. Our holdings in the United States today are a little over 40%, and that's the lowest that it's been in, I think, 14 years Mm-hmm. So really quite significant change from where we were three years ago. And again, that wasn't a forecast about what was going to happen in Europe. It was right. looking at growth opportunities, 
caring about quality, but above all, caring about price. price. So yes, we now have um, over a quarter of the portfolio invested in European companies. Mm -hmm. um, we have about another quarter of the portfolio invested in, both, in a mixture of Japanese and emerging market companies. So this is the portfolio now is you know roughly sixty percent outside the United States, right? Whereas three years ago it was roughly sixty percent inside the United States. And and you know you mentioned quality, and when we were on when you were on last on Wealthtrack last a couple of years ago, you said that you were because the prices were so high mm -hmm. in the quality growth companies that you mm -hmm. invest in, um, that you were starting to you know, look at a little bit less quality, mm -hmm. or you were looking yes. at more cyclical, economically sensitive yep. names. Absolutely. And um, because that's where the the better opportunities were mm -hmm. as far as prices mm -hmm. are concerned. Yes. So are, are you tweaking that? Is that still the case? Uh, is... Portfolio turnover has been very low. So, mm -hmm. so since uh, I said that a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. um, we have continued to tweak it. Yes. So I, I, look, I, I would suggest you know, names like Linda the German industrial gas company. Mm -hmm. You know, these are companies whose short-term earnings can be affected by the cycle, but they tend never to be mass they're not they're not leveraged to the cycle. Right. You know, so they tend to be cyclically sensitive without being, you know, cyclical in the deep cycle, mm -hmm. in the deep 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 cyclicality that we normally associate with car companies or steel companies and so on. So is the cycle still in your favor? I mean, again, with this global gold yeah. Accelerating, then it, to be well, with economically sensitive companies, that's probably a good thing at this point, yes, right? Yes, I, I think that's right. I think that's right. Whether it's in our favor is a is a more controversial issue. I think you know we've done very well over the last ten years when the going's been tough, and we were quite surprised to do well last year. No, as, you did extraordinarily going, well. Right, the funds. Yeah, we did. We we outperformed thirty five percent in the global fund or yep, something. Yeah, yeah. We so but so we did better much much better than the market in a very strongly rising market, which isn't our normal, right. isn't our normal So does that make you nervous? That Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> it comes back to what I was saying about thinking about what we've got right and what we've got wrong. So, you know, if we massively underperform, like all managers, we look at the sources of underperformance and think whether it was our mistake or can we blame the market. But we try to do the same when we outperform as well, especially uh, after years like last year, where if you've, if you've told me, it was going to be the first year for synchronized global growth in advance and that markets would rise by over a quarter in US dollars. I just said, we'll underperform. Mm -hmm. um, but we didn't. Um, so, you know, we were partly the result of some of the portfolio action we'd taken. Um, we were surprised that we outperformed, but it does look as if the going is set pretty fair for... Uh, Non-U.S. equity markets over the next couple of years. I'm obviously hesitant to, no, no, right. to forecast that. You can see a lot of dangers out there, mm -hmm. but stocks outside the United States still seem pretty cheap relative to the broader U.S. aggregates. And the emerging markets, in particular, mm -hmm. is is that? I, I mean, I, I know you've got a, an emerging markets fund, which yeah. actually is closed mm -hmm. to new investors, has been for several years because mm -hmm. it's over four billion dollars, and you weren't seeing opportunities that you didn't want to have to put more money to work. Correct. Is that still the case? That, that is still the case. Right. Yeah, it's, it's closed. It's closed. Um, right. The, the, we, we have the fund, but we also have institutional accounts. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's actually uh, closer to $20 billion and closed today. Um, but in our global and international portfolios over the last two, three years, we've been adding to emerging markets. Right. So now in global, we have about 15% today 
in emerging market stocks. In uh, in emerging market Europe. That would be uh, well, a little right? bit less than that. A little bit less than that, that. Yeah. right. Um, where we've been particularly interested in emerging markets has been in financial services. Mm. Um, so we own emerging market banks in uh, partly in uh, in emerging Europe, but also in South America, as well as Asia. So you know we, we own AIA Pacific, for example, uh, which operates out of Hong Kong, but is to all extents and purposes an emerging market company. And and why is that? I mean, why is it that there are financial companies yeah. that? It's partly that we don't like financial, still don't like financial companies very much in in, West, in, in the right. developed world. Um, they still have large amounts of non-recurring income. They're still highly leveraged. They're still operating in a very competitive margin-squeezing environment. I don't think that's going to get any better as growth uh, returns. Um, whereas the business models for emerging market banks remain relatively straightforward. They're always leveraged, of course, but much less than the developed world. Uh, they tend to be old-fashioned, you know. I'll lend you, I'll lend you $1,000 to buy a new motorbike and I'll come and get it come and get it back if you don't pay me every every month. So very simple, mostly right. consumer finance business models. Um, we like we like simplicity in our in our, uh, our banking stocks. Given the run we've had in the markets, given the prices that you're seeing in the companies mm. that you invest in or, around mm. the globe, um, you know, how concerned are you about the risks that are now uh, in in the companies that you own mm. as far as price risks yeah. are concerned? Uh, always concerned. And, you know, we began, I probably talked about it a couple of years ago, and mm -hmm. um, we've been writing about it in our quarterly reports for three years. But we've been resisting doing anything wholesale about it to, I think, our portfolio manager's credit. They've been prepared to diversify the sources of price risk, particularly out, out of the United States, into highly priced but still fast-growing companies mm -hmm. outside the United States, uh, as, as an example. And we've been prepared to say we're agnostic. You know, if you look at PEs, if you look at price to books, if you look at static measures, price-based measures of value, then markets by historic standards look very expensive. Right. But if we are in an environment where disinflation still rules, where interest rates remain fairly low, and where technology, particularly in the emerging world, is going to drive revenue, cash flow growth for a very long period of time, then stocks don't look terribly expensive. Um, that clearly means that they're at risk to an unexpected rise in interest rates. And, and for us, that's, that's the biggest risk out there, that there are inflationary pressures that we can't see anywhere lurking in the shadows that will have to be met by a more rapid increase in interest rates right. than currently expected. So that, that's got to be the biggest risk. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. The last thing I did in my own 401k plan was to buy more of our, happened to be of ours, uh, more uh, international small small cap. Ah, um, I so it's an asset class, an international asset class. small cap. Yeah, yeah, yep. I uh, I put most of my four hundred one k in international small cap. I think it's an asset class that's been neglected. I think it's an asset class that's um, uh, going to be increasingly neglected by uh, uh, sell side research analysts as regulatory change in Europe means, and, and regulatory pressures on the investment banks in the United States means that there are very significant cutbacks in uh, uh, the research capabilities mm -hmm. of the brokerage industry, which, which by and large I think will be a good thing. Right. But I think it's particularly going to mean that there will be opportunities for skilled managers in the small cap space. 
at a time when small companies probably benefit more than large ones from what's happening with increased uh, penetration of e-commerce throughout the world. You know, in the past, if you were a small Italian luxury goods manufacturer, you couldn't sell anything in Japan. You needed scale, you needed distribution, but today you can. And so I think that uh, the technological changes that we've seen over the last 20 years are providing opportunities for smaller companies that they've never had before. And I think as an asset class, it's one that's going to be increasingly neglected. What a great story. Thank, Thank you, you, Simon. Thanks for being with us. Pleasure. Thank you. On Wealthtrack. Thank you. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. We are taking this week's action point from a recommendation that Simon Hallett made to us in our most recent visit and a previous one as well. And it is one that I have made in the past. It is read Jason Zweig's book, Your Money and Your Brain, How the New Science of Neuroeconomics Can Help Make You Rich. Published in 2007, it is still an eye-opening and potentially behavior-changing analysis of how we think about money. As Weig writes, our investing brains often drive us to do things that make no logical sense, but make perfect emotional sense. That does not make us irrational, it makes us human. Understanding what's driving our decisions consciously and subconsciously can help us avoid common financial mistakes and make us better investors. Well, next week, we will need all that and more. We are going to discuss the transformational potential of cryptocurrencies with Matt Hogan, an expert on exchange-traded funds, who just joined Bitwise Asset Management, manager of the first cryptocurrency index fund. In this week's extra interview, we'll discover why Simon Hallett invested in British soccer team Plymouth Argyle, nicknamed the Pilgrims, with the Mayflower as their logo. We look forward to hearing your thoughts about this week's program and other investment topics of interest on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for watching. Have a super weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.